Please turn to John chapter 20. This morning we'll be looking at the last half of the chapter, beginning in verse 19. John chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. This is God's very word. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails... And place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. How do you know what is true? On what do you base your knowledge of what is true in life? Do you base your knowledge, the fact, when you say, I know something to be true, are you basing that on your five physical senses? Sight, hearing, smelling, touching. Is that how you know what is true? You know that I'm actually standing up here because you see me and you hear me? Or do you know the things you know in your life because of your experience? You know that the sun is going to come up tomorrow because it always has come up. There's quite a track record there. So based on your experience, you know that it's going to come up again tomorrow. Or do you know what you know because of eyewitness accounts? You might say, I know that a man has landed on the moon because credible people have reported it to me. And I trust in those accounts. Or do you know what you know because of expert opinion? When the doctor tells you that this prescription is going to make you feel better or this surgical procedure is going to help you heal, you know that that's true because you trust in him, hopefully, as an expert. Those are all just several different ways in which we say we know something. Several different bases for our knowledge, things that we say we really know this. Well, how do you know that 
Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. How do you know that? I hope that if you're here this morning, you say that I know that. Maybe there are some here who aren't quite to that point. But if you do say you know that he's risen from the dead, on what do you base that knowledge? We can't know it based on our five physical senses. We've not seen the risen Lord with our eyes. We've not heard his voice with our ears. We've not touched his risen body. So how do we know? Well, as we see in those last couple of verses that I just read, and really through the entire book of John, John keeps driving this theme home over and over again. It's really important that we acknowledge that he and the other apostles were eyewitness accounts. They, they were eyewitnesses of the accounts that they tell us. They saw, they heard, they touched, they smelled, they, they were there. They're eyewitnesses, and we need to accept their accounts as truth because they're eyewitnesses. Just to prove that this is a very strong, important message for the Apostle John, let me just read to you the very first verses of the first epistle that he wrote, 1 John Beginning in verse 1, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Did you hear all the references there to his physical senses? He saw, he heard, he touched. So we should know that this is true because he's an eyewitness. Well, that's really such a strong message here in John chapter 20. John really wants us to believe that Jesus is risen from the dead because our eternal destiny rests upon it. And so... This account is given so that we might understand this, that we might be strengthened in our knowledge that this is true, therefore our faith that this is true. Beginning in verse 19, what we see here is that the disciples are gathered together in a locked room somewhere in Jerusalem. They're scared, it says, for fear of the Jews. The Jews may have been, we don't, they don't, I don't, we don't know if they knew, but they may well have been looking for them. The Romans might have been looking for them. They're scared. They're confused. And they're excited because there's some weird rumors coming around. They've been hearing, and some of them even seeing things, that they're not quite sure what to make of it. Just think, this is resurrection day. The same day in which Jesus was raised from the dead. This is what Put yourself in the place of the disciples. This is what they know. Mary Magdalene had come back to them and reported to them that the tomb was empty. At that point, Peter and John ran to the tomb and confirmed that the tomb was empty. And then Mary Magdalene came again to them and said, I have seen the risen Jesus Christ. And then a group of other women came to the disciples and said, We have seen Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Peter, at some point during this day, Peter also had an encounter with the risen Lord. And just probably, uh, just moments before the account that we have here, if you put John's account together with Luke's account, just moments before this, two disciples that had been on their way to Emmaus had actually seen the Lord Jesus Christ, and they came back to tell the disciples 
what they had seen. So this is the state of mind. Put yourself in their shoes. This is, they don't know what to think. What's happening here? They didn't understand. Could it be true? How could it be true? And what does it mean if it is true? While they're talking this over, debating, excitedly talking over top of one another, suddenly, it says, the risen Jesus Christ was in their midst. He was there. It's a miracle. I don't know. John, as he often does throughout this entire gospel, doesn't tell us the kind of curious data that we'd like to hear. He just says Jesus is suddenly there. The temptation for the disciples would be to think he's a ghost. They're having mass illusions here, you know, delusions. They don't know what's going on. And so, actually, that's where it's interesting. He says, in Luke's account, it says that he says to the disciples, touch my hands, touch this risen body. He says, and he goes on to quote him directly, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And then he actually says, I'm hungry. Do you have anything to eat? And they bring him a piece of broiled fish, and Luke points out very clearly, he says, he took it and he ate it. So this is no ghost. His body's real. He's been bodily raised from the dead. And he says to his disciples, peace be unto you. Peace be with you. Peace be upon you. Now that's the normal Jewish greeting. Matter of fact, if you go to Jerusalem today, you'll hear Jews greet each other in the street and say, Shalom Aleichem. Peace be upon you. So this was the normal greeting. In a sense, he'd say, well, he's saying hi. But he repeats it. Lest we think he's just giving a normal greeting. Matter of fact, the text says he says it three times altogether in the course of this week here. Peace be upon you. Peace be with you. He's not just giving them a mindless greeting. He's saying, okay, look at my hands. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. By his wounds we are healed. Because he was nailed to the cross, because he shed his blood, because he was punished in our place, because he was the sacrificed lamb of God. Peace is upon us. That's what he's saying. And then he goes on. Here again, he's talking to the church. Confused, scared, excited. He's talking to the church as it's being born here. And he gives them a foreshadowing of the Great Commission. The Great Commission is actually not, in the formal sense we know, go and make disciples of all lands. That, That Great Commission isn't given for several weeks yet. But he gives a teaser here of it. He says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. There's so much packed into that little statement. But don't miss the fact, one thing he's saying is, my mission in one sense is complete because sin is paid for at the cross. Redemption has been accomplished. But in another sense, the mission of Christ goes on. And that the mission of the church flows out of and is a continuation of the mission of Christ. As we take that message of his death on the cross to the world. 
So in other words, in one sense, what Jesus is saying to the church is, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son into the world that whosoever should believe upon him should never perish but have everlasting life. Yes, but for God so loved the world that he sent the church into the world to take that message to the four corners of the earth. That's how much God loved the world. He has sent you just as he has sent me. We are the body of Christ, completing the mission that Christ came to accomplish. Then he describes the nature of the church's mission. Now this is a verse that has caused a lot of consternation in the church and among commentators for centuries. He says, speaking to the disciples, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now one thing I know that Jesus is not saying is that we have the authority to forgive sin because Jesus himself clearly said only God can forgive sin. Now some commentators, and this is possible, it's possible that this is the right interpretation. Some commentators say he's speaking particularly to the apostles in terms of those who were the leaders of the church, the elders of the church, so to speak, and that this is the authority of the leadership of the church to accept people into the church through baptism or to, to administer the Lord's Supper as a sign of being a member in good standing of the church or to excommunicate an unrepentant, scandalous sinner It's possible that this is speaking of church authority, but I don't think so. I think the better interpretation, and a couple reasons why. One is, let me give you the reasons, and I'll tell you what my interpretation is. First of all, understand that if we put this together with Luke's account in Luke chapter 24. Now, those are parallel accounts. Clearly, Luke is telling the same story as John, but John tells things to us that Luke doesn't tell us, and Luke tells us things that John's not tell us. One thing that Luke tells us is that Clopas and his friend, who were on the road to Emmaus, had come in the same event. They're there in the room. So it's not just the ten disciples. It's actually other disciples. At least those two others were there, probably. And also, um, I'm sorry, my mind just blanked out here. Let me get my spot again. I never do this. Um, Who made the face of me? It made my mind blank out there. Um, (laughs) You know what I'm doing is I'm straying from my notes. Every time I stray from my notes, I pay the price. Let me get back into it here. So Luke's account, also, here's here's the thing that really nails it down for me. That's where I was going. This is the thing that nails it down. Luke's account, he, he adds these words of Jesus. He says, Thus it is written that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. He talks about the mission of the church, not just the mission of the leadership of the church. So even though it's a strange way to say it to our ears, he says, you are to go out and proclaim forgiveness to those who believe, and to, that when those who do not believe will not receive forgiveness. That's the power of the gospel, that we're taking the message of the gospel to the world, all of us, in all of our different callings, in all our different settings, and that those who believe the message will be forgiven, and those who reject the message will not be forgiven. I do believe that's what, Paul, what, what Jesus is saying here to his disciples. And that, if that is a correct interpretation of it, then it's interesting what that says about the next statement Jesus makes, another odd statement. It says he breathes on his disciples and says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, first of all, it doesn't say he breathes on them, actually, in the original text. It says he breathes. He lets out a, a, a breath of air. And then it says, receive the Holy Spirit. 
Now, I know for one, for sure, again, you can eliminate what we're sure he's not saying here. We can be sure that he's not saying that they are receiving the Holy Spirit for the very first time. Because that would be talking about regeneration, about being born again. And if that's the receiving of the Holy Spirit he's referring to, then they would have never followed in the first place. They, would, they wouldn't be there if the Holy Spirit hadn't already given them the ability to believe. So he's not referring to regeneration or being born again. But he also is not speaking about Pentecost. He's not talking about when the Holy Spirit came upon the church and the church was empowered with great boldness to go out and turn the world upside down because that happens several weeks later. And matter of fact, again, going back to Luke's account, it's really helpful to read these two accounts side by side. In Luke's account, Jesus also says here, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So he's referring still to the Pentecost to come, the outpouring of the Spirit on the entire church as it was. What he's referring to is something preliminary here. Again, he's foreshadowing Pentecost, I think. He's giving a gift of the Holy Spirit to these particular disciples. And again, if you go back to Luke, he tells us what that gift is. Because Luke says, after giving that comment, Luke says, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day be rise from the dead. In other words, they put all the pieces together. They understood how the Old Testament scriptures had pointed to the cross, how the cross fulfilled the promises of redemption. They put it all together because Christ gave them the gift of the Holy Spirit here to understand so that they'd be prepared to take the message out to the world. And we still receive that gift to this day. That's the gift of the Spirit referred to. This brings us to the one disciple among the faithful 11 that wasn't there on that day. Verse 24 says, Now Thomas was not with them when Jesus came. See what happens when you skip church? (laughs) Thomas has been called through all ages. He's been called Doubting Thomas. I feel bad for Thomas. You know, when you call him Doubting Thomas, that puts him just one level above Judas, doesn't it? You know? I think a better title, and again, you can use doubt or, or skepticism in negative ways, but I like calling Thomas a skeptic instead, instead of a doubter. He was a skeptic. I think he's someone who didn't easily believe. I think he was someone who wanted a lot of evidence before he believed. And there are a lot of you out there like that. I'm not. But there are a lot of you out there that really demand tangible evidence, really want a track record. that You, you want the spreadsheet. You want something to help you believe. That's a temperament. It's a, it's a way some of us are wired. It's not necessarily wrong. And I think that's the way Thomas was. Everything we know about Thomas comes from three passages in the book of John. We don't know anything about Thomas from anywhere else in Scripture, but John tells us about three incidents that involve Thomas. And I really hate to do this to anybody. I would hate for somebody to look at three quick events in my life and then tell me what kind of a person I am based on those three events. And, um, but I'm going to do that to Thomas here and I think, because I think it's valid to say even if I'm going to be, you know, I can't really know Thomas based on these three events, I think you get a sense of a tendency here. So let me lay them before you. Back in chapter 11, remember when Lazarus got sick. The context of Lazarus getting sick was that Jesus, they had tried to arrest Jesus in Jerusalem and he and the disciples went out into the wilderness. And 
Then he got news that Lazarus was deathly ill. And so when it came time, Jesus said, okay, let's go, go to Lazarus. Well, Lazarus lived in the neighborhood of Jerusalem. And so Thomas says to the other disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, skeptics, skeptics have a tendency, we all, based on our temperaments, all have good and bad tendencies, but skeptics have a tendency to be pessimists. And so he says, let's go with Jesus so we can die with him. And I'm, I'm the optimist, you know, I'm the idealist. I'm the one who says to Tom, hey, lighten up. How do you know you're going to die? You know, why are you thinking worst case scenario here? Some good things come out, could come out of this. But I want you to notice that he said, let's go with him and I'm willing to die with him. Don't miss that. Don't criticize him. He was willing to put his life on the line already for Christ. William Hendrickson is my favorite commentator of the New Testament books. And Hendrickson, when he talks about Thomas, he always uses the same phrase. He calls Thomas the devoted but despondent disciple. The devoted but despondent disciple. You know the old phrase, how the optimist will say, the glass is half full. The pessimist will say the glass is half empty. Have you heard the corollary? An engineer says that it's twice as big as it needs to be. I, I tease my engineer friends all the time, and there are a lot of them here, I know. But I love engineers. I'm not an engineer type. I never would have made it in engineering school. I would never make it in the profession of engineering because I'm an optimist, an idealist. I'm an easy believer. You know, I don't need spreadsheets. I don't not need numbers. I don't need budgets. Let's just go do it. You know, it's, it's going to turn out well. I know it is. That's the way I am. But when I, you know, when I first became a pastor, I had a very wise older pastor say to me, Dan, you're an optimist. You're an idealist. Make sure you have at least one engineer on every session that you serve. <laughs> and I have come to love the engineers that I've worked with in church leadership. I love them. I get really mad at them, and they drive me nuts, but I love them dearly because they put me in check. They balance me, and it's another example of how God uses the temperaments and gifts of different believers to work together to do great things. Well, here in John chapter 20, we have Thomas again. He's not, he wasn't there on resurrection day with the disciples. We don't know where he was. We don't know why he wasn't there. He may have taken the death of Christ harder than the other disciples. Remember, this is the despondent but devoted disciple. Maybe he was just taking it so hard he he needed some alone time. He needed to go process. I don't know. We don't know. Maybe he was just getting groceries. We don't know. But he wasn't there. And from that day on, the rest of the week, the disciples keep saying to him, we've seen the Lord. John gives his response I think, actually, in the original language, you'll get the, the, the weight of it or the tone of it better if you get it, if you actually, in English, if you turn the sentence around and what Thomas is really saying, I will never believe unless I see his, in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of his nails and place my hand in his side. He's stressing how hard it is for him to believe what they're telling him. How impossible it is to believe just on their word alone. That's what he's saying. He needs more. He needs more evidence. Hearing about Christ's resurrection wasn't enough for him. 
Even seeing the resurrected Christ wouldn't be enough for him, he's saying. I need to touch the wounds in his hands and the wound in his side before I'll ever believe. When I was first getting into ministry, I went to some leadership seminars, and one of the first things they teach you is when you're working with a group of people, you're trying to lead them through change. People resist change naturally, and so when you're just trying to get the scope of the land, you're trying to lead people through change, the first thing you have to realize is that there's always a small percentage of people in any group of people, we're talking in the church or outside the church, there's always a small group of people that because of their temperament, they're early adopters. And then there's another small percentage of the group that are always late adopters, and then everybody else is somewhere in between. And so, you know, the early adopters are the fun ones. When you want to do something, you want to institute change in a, in a community, the early adopters are the one you love to get on board, and, you know, they want to run ahead with you and do all kinds of crazy things. But the late adopters... You know, you have to work with them. You have to be patient. You have to get the evidence, do the research, work out the spreadsheets, do the budgets. You know, you have to do that for the late adopters. But what the leadership seminar told me was those are the people that once they're convinced, they're rock solid. They're loyal. They're not going to, you know, they're the ones you really can count on. They're not going to, you know, up here on a good day and down here on a bad day. They're just going to be with you. Well, that's Thomas. He's a late adopter when it comes to the resurrection. You know what? When you think of, if if there are a spectrum of of temperaments, you've got skeptics on this end of the spectrum. You know what the other end of the spectrum is? Gullible people. (laughs) You know, people who believe too easily. And Thomas, yeah, he tended toward one side, but that's not necessarily wrong. Matter of fact, Jesus gave a version of the gospel for skeptics. Did you know that? Back in Luke chapter 14, here's Jesus giving the gospel to skeptics. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down and first deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for a terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. He's talking to skeptics there. He's talking to people who need to count the cost. And he's encouraging them to do so. There's nothing wrong with that. If you're willing to pay the cost once you see what it is. Deny yourself. Lay down your life and follow Christ. Well, one week later, the first appearance when Jesus appeared to his, the ten disciples and whoever else was there, that was on Resurrection Day, the first day of the week, Sunday. I know the text says eight days later. But it actually was the following Sunday. I'm not saying there's, a con- there's an error in Scripture. What I'm saying is you've got to count days the way the Jews counted days. You remember where it's, Jesus said, on the third day I'll rise again? Did he really rise again after three days? Well, not by our counting. It was actually less than 48 hours after he died that he rose again. But the way the Jews counted days, you count Friday he died, Saturday, and Sunday. So three days. That's how they count days. So Jesus, it says, when you count from resurrection day to the day when Jesus appeared to his disciples again, it's actually what we would call a week. They call it eight days, but it's actually a week. So Jesus appeared to his disciples again on the first day of the week, and he's teaching the church to gather on the first day of the week to worship. 
the resurrected Christ. He's teaching them patiently. That's why the disciples changed the Sabbath from the seventh day of the week to the first day, because that was the day of the resurrection. And Thomas is there. I just want you to notice that. Thomas was there. He wanted to believe. He was hoping that what these other disciples were telling him is true. He's not able to believe yet, but he's hoping that it's true. That's important to recognize that. He's still with the church. He's still with the disciples. And there's a point in that for all of us, is that we as a church body need to be welcoming and gentle and accepting and loving to skeptics that aren't there yet, but they're open. We need to be a welcoming church to skeptics so that they can be among us to experience the resurrected Christ among us. But Jesus comes this time for Thomas. And amazingly, he addresses Thomas and and invites him to do exactly what what he said he had to do. He almost quotes him word for word, which shows he knew the very heart of Thomas. And he says, go ahead. Touch the holes in my hands. Touch the wound in my side. Stop disbelieving and believe. There may be a tone of a gentle, loving rebuke here, but I don't think so. I don't pick up on any condemnation. He's meeting Thomas where he is as a skeptic. He's willing to meet him where he is. Don't we all long for some kind of tangible, visible, concrete truth of what we believe? Well, why is Jesus so accommodating to Thomas? Didn't the the Pharisees come to Jesus and say to him, Show us a sign, Jesus, then we'll believe. Do you know what the Gospels tell us, how Jesus responded to that request? He refused. He would not give visible signs, wouldn't do miracles for the Pharisees. Why is he willing to, do, to meet Thomas in this way? Well, it's because the Pharisees weren't open to believing. They were trying to disprove everything that Jesus was claiming The parallel to Thomas is not the Pharisees. The parallel to Thomas is the man who had the demon-possessed son, and Jesus asked him, do you believe that I can heal your son? And he said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I'm doubting, Jesus. I'm trying to believe. I want to believe. I'm almost there. Help me get over the hump. Help me believe. And Jesus honored that and gave him the sign. You see, if you're a skeptic this morning, just be open. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You don't have to buy the whole package in one setting. Just trust that he is there and that if you cry out to him, help me in my unbelief, he'll meet you where you are and take you to real belief. That's his work, not your work. Do you notice how Thomas responded? My Lord and my God. One commentator I read said this. He said, this is the highest profession of belief recorded in the Gospels. He doesn't say, just say, Jesus, my Lord. He says, Jesus, my God. What incredible God-given insight. Talk about faith being flooded upon him in a moment. Matter of fact, if you were to translate, this was written in Greek in John, but if, you, if it were said in Hebrew, it would sound just like Yahweh Elohim, which is the common name for the one true God in the Old Testament. 
You see, once you convince a skeptic, they're rock solid, unmovable in faith. In early church tradition, it says that uh, Thomas took the gospel first to Persia and then to, to, to India. God used him greatly as a converted skeptic. And that brings us back to you and me. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead? If you say you do, then how do you know that that's true? Jesus told Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Once the day the apostles was over, from that point on, the church has turned this world upside down and spread to every corner of the world, and no one has seen the risen Christ with their eyes or touched him with their hands. No one. Blessed are those who believe without seeing. We are to live by faith, not by sight. We don't live by visible signs. We don't need things written in the skies for us to follow Christ because of the gift of faith that he gives us. John tells us here in these last couple of verses, and these are the theme of his entire book, he tells us that his testimony is what God has given to us. His eyewitness testimony. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Eyewitness testimony to the resurrected Christ. That's what God has given us. But you know, there's an interesting transition that happens when you get to John's epistle. In 1 John, over in chapter 5, the same apostle writes this. This is beginning in verse 9 of chapter 5. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Now listen already what he's saying. We are to shift that confidence in the eyewitness account of the apostles to say that their word is the word of God. That the Gospel accounts are actually the word of God and that we have therefore the word of God and we have the testimony of the Son of God within ourselves, the Holy Spirit. And that is what grows the church today. You have the word of the prophets and the apostles, which is the very word of God, which spreads by the power of the Holy Spirit in the lives of sinners. There's the testimony. And so John goes on to say, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. You can know that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. You can know that for sure based on three means, three bases. First of all, Credible eyewitness testimony of the apostles. Secondly, the expert opinion of the creator of the universe himself. Because the testimony of the apostles is the word of God. And who's going to doubt God's word? Then thirdly, you have the experience of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. The peace, the power, the joy, every day that the Holy Spirit teaches you, guides you, strengthens you, nurtures you, protects you. Every day you experience that, your certainty about the resurrection of Jesus Christ grows stronger. Eyewitness testimony, expert opinion, daily experience. You can be sure that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for the testimony of your word, and we thank you for the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Father, we are sinners who don't deserve any of this, but you have made it possible through Jesus Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. As we continue to celebrate that resurrection, we are so, so very thankful, so very humbled, and we are so thankful that you have given us the mission of Christ to take that message, to take that gospel to the ends of the world. May we be strengthened, may we be guided, may we be protected as we fulfill that mission. We pray in Christ's name, amen.